This is Easter Sunday, so we might as well start with the Easter message. Amen? We'll start reading in verse 1. It says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. I guess that means they fell over. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. You know, the Bible tells us that uh, that Jesus endured the suffering of the cross, and it was the cross was a place of victory. I'm sorry, the cross was a place of defeat, whereas the resurrection was a place of victory. Every now and then I'll have somebody ask and say, Pastor Mike, how come you don't have any crosses in your church and stuff like that? Well, enjoy that. (laughs) My answer is always the same, and that is because the cross was a place of defeat. Jesus didn't look forward to the cross. He knew that it was something that was necessary to fulfill his plan for the, uh, fulfill God's plan and his uh, purpose for Jesus being here on the earth. But the cross was a place of defeat. Everybody looked like it was over, or everything looked like it was over. It looked like it was uh, it was hopeless at that point. Now, if we're going to have a, a symbol or sign of something, we'd have a, a, an empty tomb, because that's the place of victory. The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, if you look through the Gospels and you see what happened after Jesus was raised from the dead, when he first appeared to his disciples, he is one happy guy. As we said, the Bible tells us that it was for the joy, the joy of the resurrection that was set before him and what the resurrection would bring, new life for you and me and anybody else that believes in him. That was the whole reason that he endured the suffering of the cross. So when Jesus appears to the disciples, I mean, he's he's saying, all hail. Well, before then, just a few days before that, we see Jesus in agony. We see Jesus determined. We see Jesus with his with his jaw set. He knows that he's got to do this, but it's not anything that he's looking forward to. He just sees it as a necessary part of fulfilling God's plan. But after the resurrection, he's a different type of person. I mean, he is he's excited. He speaks to them, peace be unto you. He shares with them everything that he's got. He tells them everything that he can about the, the day that we live in, the the, uh, the age of grace, the church age that we're now living in. He, he tells them uh, all kinds of things that he never was able to tell them before. He spends 40 days off and on with them until the day of Pentecost. He's a different type of person. Well, we look at the cross and we see Jesus hanging there physically. Psalm 22, let me read some things from uh, Psalm 22. You may be familiar with some of these verses, um, but the 22nd Psalm gives us a picture of Jesus on the cross. It says, well, let's see, where do we want to start reading with this? Let's start in verse 11. It says, be not far from me, for, my, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. That's the Sanhedrin. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. You remember when they, the Roman soldiers poked the spear in Jesus' side? It says water and blood came out. Well, here's the, here's the, uh, the Old Testament prophecy. Here's David speaking prophetically about what Jesus would endure on the cross. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. 
And my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. The word tell is the word count. The Bible tells us that Jesus' visage, his appearance was so marred, it was so changed by what he endured, not just the physical beating, not just the the crucifixion and the, the, the terror of that in itself, but it's talking about how that sin was laid upon Jesus. And as a result, that sin changed Jesus' appearance so that the Bible says he didn't even look like a man. There was something supernatural about this. Even the Roman soldiers recognized that when it went dark just before Jesus died, when there was an earthquake, all the things that they were seeing and witnessing, they crucified lots of people. There are two thieves crucified on Jesus' right and left hand. But the Roman soldiers said when Jesus died, surely this was the Son of God. They saw something about his physical death that was so astounding to them, that was so out of the ordinary, so unusual that they recognized without knowing anything about Jesus' life, without knowing anything about what Jesus preached, without knowing anything about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, they said, this guy must have been the Son of God. Well, we look at Jesus on the cross, and most of the time that's as far as we look. But folks, Jesus hung for three hours on the cross. Prior to that, the evening before that, he was taken into Pilate's court, and he was beaten. Now, we don't know how long that was, and certainly it was horrible. The Bible says that by Jesus' stripes we were healed. That's a, that's a real unclear picture for us because literally what it says is by the mark of the blow, a bruise. In other words, it's saying his back was one mark. Now, according to the language, if there was as much as one sixty-fourth of an inch between any two marks, any two distinguishable marks, you couldn't have used the words that were used. In other words, it's telling us, That Jesus' back was literally ripped off. The flesh was ripped off of his back and his back was one bruise. And the Bible says that he suffered that penalty and that that punishment for our sickness. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. A lot of the church argues about whether healing is for today. The Bible says that by his stripes we were healed. Literally by the mark of the blow or the mark of the bruise, we were healed. Jesus shed his blood for healing before he ever shed his blood for sin. Now, you decide for yourself what you think that means. I know what it means. I have no doubt of what it means. I've seen enough people healed by the stripes of Jesus. I've seen enough people healed by claiming that promise by faith. I've seen enough people healed by the use of the name of Jesus to know what it means. But Jesus paid for sickness before he paid for sin. Same blood. Same blood being shed. Well, these were things that happened... Within a one-day period of time, 24 hours. Now, let me ask you a question. What kind of guy was Jesus? You know, a lot of the movies and stuff like that, they pick the frailest, skinniest guy to play Jesus. I mean, some of these guys look like they're already dead before he ever gets to the cross, you know? (laughs) That always aggravates me. Because Jesus was a guy that everybody wanted to be around. Jesus was a guy that real men, guys like Peter, wanted to follow. I can't see Peter and what the Bible tells us about Peter wanting to follow some of the guys they picked to play Jesus. That's just me. Well, what kind of guy was he then? He was a real man's man. He was a tough guy. He grew up as a carpenter. By the way, carpenters in Jesus' day were house builders. We didn't have cabinet makers and stuff like that, or they didn't have cabinet makers and specialty jobs like we do today. A carpenter was basically somebody that built things, built houses and stuff. 
So he's a real guy. I mean, he worked with his hands. He was a real rough and rugged guy. He, he was a real man. Well, when Jesus is shying away from the, the crucifixion, when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating great drops of blood, which medical science tells us that, 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 that nobody has ever done that and lived. There have been a couple of occasions where somebody has sweat drops of blood, but the, the shock to their system caused them to die. But when Jesus does this, what's he agonizing over? Is he not able to take three hours on the cross? Well, the two thieves took and spent the same time on the cross and even longer before they died. So is Jesus such a weak guy that he can't handle what two ungodly thieves could handle? It's got to be something more than that. Well, what's he agonizing over then? Well, they weren't beaten. The thieves weren't beaten like Jesus was. Okay, well, I can understand that. If Jesus, if Jesus knows the pain and the, the suffering that he's going to endure in, in that, okay, I've got it. But wait a minute. Think about Jesus and what he did to deny his flesh while he was here on the earth. The Bible says Jesus fasted for 40 days and was at the point of death when the devil came to tempt him. So is physical death what he's pulling away from? What's he agonizing over? Folks, there are things that happened not just from the physical side of seeing Jesus hang on the cross that were much more agonizing and, and much greater in punishment than anything we witnessed. There's, um, there's some information that the Bible gives us. Just like Psalm 22 tells us about what Jesus would endure on the cross, Psalm 88 tells us about what Jesus endured after the cross. Now, there's, um, there's some interesting things. We're, we're going to talk about several things regarding this, but I, I, let, me, let me set this up. The Bible says that, that everything about the Old Testament was a type and a shadow for us. What that means is it paints a picture of what Jesus would do and fulfill. Jesus fulfilled everything that there was about the Old Covenant. If there was one thing that the Old Covenant did that Jesus didn't fulfill, then that means he wasn't a worthy sacrifice. That means the Old Covenant would still be better as far as a way to God. Right? Well, we think of Jesus, and the Bible says, Paul wrote to us and said, Christ is our Passover who was sacrificed for us. We think of Jesus because he was killed or crucified around Passover. We think of Jesus as being the Passover lamb. Well, he certainly fulfilled that. No question about that. But Jesus had to fulfill everything else too. Jesus had to fulfill every Old Testament sacrifice and what it represented in order for him to be a worthy sacrifice, in order for him to fulfill the law. Because, like I said, if Jesus in his work and his sacrifice and as great as what he did was, if there was anything that was uh, commanded or ordained under the old covenant that Jesus did not fulfill, then that means the old covenant is still better. So he had to fulfill everything. Well, one of the things that Jesus fulfilled was the day of atonement. Now, the day of atonement is interesting because it tells us about how the sins of Israel could be covered For the following year. The following year. Not the previous year. The following year. The Day of Atonement came once a year. Now here's what's interesting. The Day of Atonement is told us in Leviticus chapter 16 and there in the surrounding chapters. And it tells us very specifically that it came as a result or came about at the immediately following when Aaron had two sons that died trying to offer sacrifices to God. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now after Aaron's two sons died, God said, and that's where he instituted the Day of Atonement. 
And he gives some very specific instructions. He gives instructions about how that Aaron had to offer a sacrifice for himself first before he could do anything on behalf of the people. And then it says that he was to take two lambs. One is an offering for the people and one is what's called a scapegoat. Now the offering for the people was very detailed in what they had to do. You had to, had to kill it in a certain way. You had to take the blood and put it on the altar. Had to put the blood on the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the center place there in between the, the wings of the angels and, uh, and sanctify all the elements of the temple and so forth. There was very, very specific and detailed instructions for that. But the other goat was to be turned loose. It was literally known as the goat that lives. Now, this goat that lives was to be turned loose and carried by somebody into the wilderness. But first, the high priest had to pronounce curses on it, which represent the curses or the sins of the people and the curses that came upon them as a result of their disobedience to the word or to the law of God. Now, here's what's interesting about this to me. The scapegoat, the word scapegoat is used four times and all of them are in Leviticus chapter 16. The reality is scapegoat is a mistranslation. Now let me tell you what it really means. And you check this out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. You can, you can go on the internet. You can Google credible sources. You can Google even Wikipedia and, and stuff like that. They'll all tell you pretty much the same thing. And that is this. When William Tyndale, and I'm not sure if I got the dates right, so I wrote some of this stuff down. William Tyndale, in his 1530 Bible, in in 1530, he took the Old Testament text, the Old Testament Hebrew text, and he began to translate that. Now, the King James Bible didn't come out until uh, 1611, I think it was. And so they took Tyndale's translation, they took Tyndale's work on the language, and then they came to the English, what we know of as the King James Tyndale took a word that he didn't know what it meant. And he translated this word. Um, the, the, the original word in the Hebrew is A-Z-A-Z-E-L, Azazel. He translated it Azizel. Now, Az means, I'm not sure, one word means goat and the other word means escape. And so we got from the English language, scapegoat. But that's not what the, that's not what the original word meant. And so since that time, we've called it a scapegoat and have missed, in my opinion, have missed the real meaning of this. Now, let me read what Azazel means in Hebrew. Azazel is a name for a fallen angel from the Hebrew scriptures and the Apocrypha, where the name is used interchangeably with Ramiel and Gadriel. This Azazel can be understood as the evil demon in the desert to whom the goat was sent. Modern scholars generally reject Tyndale's interpretation in favor of the one of the fallen angel interpretation. In fact, today in modern Hebrew, Azazel is used in a derogatory manner as in, and I don't know how to say it in Hebrew, but something that translates go to Azazel to mean go to hell. Now, here's the reason I bring this up. In the original language, from what God, from what they tell us, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I have enough trouble with English, as you well know. But in the original language, the Bible says that there were two goats, one that was to be offered as a sacrifice, and one that was to be sent into this Azazel. 
And it was apparently, if we're to accept what Hebrew scholars tell us about the word today, well, the, the, the evil ruler, the demon ruler of the wilderness. Now, the Bible says some interesting things about Jesus because one thing it says he was cut off from the land of the living. It says he was cut off from the land of the living. That's easy to interpret in a physical context and just say, well, that means Jesus died physically. But Jesus, in talking about some of these very same things, in explaining to the, to the um, religious leaders, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said, God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He calls those that had already died physically, but who were the Old Testament patriarchs, he called them the living. He said, God's still the God of the living. Talking about Abraham. Talking about Isaac, talking about Jacob, talking about the Old Testament saints. He said God was still the God of the living. So if the Bible, who Jesus, by the Holy Ghost, says God's still the God of the living, not those who are physically dead, that must mean the those who are dead means dead spiritually. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where both die and one goes to hell and the other goes to Abraham's bosom. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. Both people are trapped. Nobody can move or change their location. They can't move from the place that they are. Yet those in Abraham's bosom are considered the living. Only those who are separated from God in the lower part of the earth, the lower part of hell, are considered the dead. So here where it speaks of Jesus, it or speaks of the scapegoat, excuse me, what we call the scapegoat, it's talking about the goat that lives is to be sent to what would represent hell. Now with that in mind, turn with me to Psalm 88. There were some things that um, uh, that the Lord began to deal with me about a couple of days ago. Things that I'd never seen before. Things about eternal life and eternal death. We think of uh, eternal life as longevity. And, and certainly that's part of it. Thank God for that. But eternal life, when Jesus spoke of life, he only used one word, and, and, and it's the word zoe in the Greek. Translated into the, uh, into the English means life, but it's talking about a quality of life. It's not talking about a length of life. It's talking about a quality of life. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. That's quality of life. He didn't say, I came that you might have life and have it for a long time. No, he's talking about a quality of life. He's talking about a characteristic of life that's different than anything else that's, that's understood by mankind. Well, how could mankind understand the kind of life that Jesus lived, the kind of life that was in Jesus that made him who he was and the kind of life that he brought through his resurrection because nobody could be saved yet at that point. So how could anybody relate to that? So when he talks about life more abundantly, he's talking about a quality of life. How did that quality of life come and what is the opposite of that life? Well, the Bible says that our problem before we were saved is not that we were sinners. It says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Man's problem is not that he sins, talking about unsaved man. His problem is that he's dead. Now, he's alive physically. So how is he dead? He's dead spiritually. That spiritual death is the opposite of eternal life. And that spiritual death is not just longevity. It's not just eternity for a long time, although that's part of it too. That spiritual death, or for the sake of our discussion this morning, we'll call eternal death, is a quality of existence, or lack of quality of existence, that comes only from one 
means or comes only by one way, and that is separation from God. That's the difference between those who died and were in hell, like the rich man versus Lazarus, who was in Abraham's bosom and still alive. They both existed. Well, what made the difference? Connection with God. See, when the Bible speaks of death, very seldom does it speak of physical death. It's talking about separation from God. Therefore, when it comes to a sacrifice in the Old Testament, the reason that they had to make the sacrifice year after year after year is because they're using an animal sacrifice, and that animal is a temporary life. The reason it's a temporary life is because nothing other than mankind in God's creation is a spirit being. Animals don't have souls. Well, they have souls, but they aren't spirit beings. They have souls. They have personalities, and that's what we think of as souls in that respect. But that personality is comes about as a result of their physical makeup, not their inner or spiritual makeup. They are not spirit beings. So there's no way that a non-spirit being, an animal, could make a sacrifice that could bring eternal benefits. And eternal, again, I'm not just talking about length of time. I'm talking about quality of life. This is what's so stupid about the, uh, I mean, it's just totally ridiculous about the idea of evolution. Because somewhere, you know, from the, from the amoeba to the, to the thing that crawls on the beach, to the thing that has web feet, to, to the thing that has, has uh, toes, all this physical change and adaptation and stuff like that, at what point does the gorilla get, become a spirit being? And how could that possibly take place? It's ridiculous. See, it's all based on physical characteristics. The idea of evolution is based on physical characteristics. They still can't prove it, but that's their theory. That's where it comes from. But it's impossible for something that's not a spirit being to have spirit being characteristics. It's impossible for a non-spirit being, meaning an animal, sacrifice to bring about spiritual results. That's why it could only last for one year. So on the Day of Atonement, the one animal is sacrificed to cover the sins of Israel for the following year, the year forward. Well, what covers the sins last year? What covers the previous year? Last year's Day of Atonement. But what about the other animal? The one that's turned loose. The one that's turned loose is sent to what represents for us hell. And the judgment of God falls on that animal in the wilderness. Because it's now the punishment for sin. So you've got two animals on the Day of Atonement. You've got one a sacrifice for sin through blood. The other you've got the judgment or the punishment for sin through its life itself. Psalm 88. Let's start reading in... Well, where we want to go. Let's start reading in verse 3. This is speaking prophetically about Jesus, and you'll see this, because no man experienced this. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. Let me read this from some other translations too. It says, my soul is full of troubles, satiated with evils. Now the word satiate means to satisfy fully, to glut someone, to come to the point of overindulgence. In other words, it says I'm consumed, I'm overwhelmed with evils. My soul is full of trouble and my life draweth nigh unto the grave or satiated with evils. I'm counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that hath no strength. Another translation says my, or other translations, not just one, but many other translations say things like this. My soul has arrived at Sheol, the kingdom of death. I am become a man without God. 
Verse 5, free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, they are cut off from thy hand. Verse 6, thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness in the deeps. Another translation says, in the lowest pit, the the pit of dense darkness. Verse 7, thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. Selah. Now, let me ask you a question. The word selah always is a, it's a word of praise. Why in the world would anybody prophesy about somebody undergoing the wrath of God, laying hard upon them and being afflicted with all their waves and say, praise God? There's only one thing that brings praise in this situation or that we could consider praise worthy in this situation, and that is that something is paying your price. Something is suffering instead of you. Someone. Another translation says, Thou dost lay thy wrath fully upon me, all thy breakers, meaning waves, giant waves that crash on the shore, all thy breakers thou hast poured upon me. Verse 8, Thou hast put away mine, in, mine acquaintance far from me. Thou hast made me an abomination unto them. I am shut up and I cannot come forth. Now let me ask you a question. Who are the acquaintances of Jesus? Well, those were the people that believed in him. Others that would be alive, like those that were in Abraham's bosom. But he says he separated from them. Now, some people will stop right here and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor Mike. Remember when Jesus was crucified, he said to the thief on on the cross, one of them that kind of stood up for him and said, we deserve this, but Jesus didn't do anything to deserve this punishment. Told the other guy, quit cursing Jesus and so forth. Jesus says to this guy, he, he said, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. Jesus said, I say unto you, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And so some people will say, take that verse of scripture and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's got to mean Abraham's bosom. So Jesus is saying that he's going to Abraham's bosom that day. But that's not what it says. The word today, the word that's translated today is the, is literally, it literally means this day. So he's saying one of two things. He's either saying, I'm saying to you today, or I'm saying to you this day, or he's saying, And the second possibility is he's saying, I'm going today to paradise. Which is it? Well, the only thing that fits the other scriptures is Jesus saying, I'm telling you today, period, or comma, you shall be with me in paradise. He's not saying he's going there immediately. He does get there. But he gets there three days from now. Because if Jesus went to paradise, who paid the judgment or who fulfilled the judgment or the punishment for sin? If Jesus went to paradise, he's only one part of the day of atonement. And that's the animal sacrifice. Who, who paid the, the scapegoat part? Who fulfilled that part? Jesus has got to fulfill everything about the old covenant, which means he's got to fulfill both parts of the day of atonement sacrifice. Both the animal that dies and the animal that lives or is sent into the wilderness, that which represents hell. There's no other possibility. It has to happen. Verse 9. Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon thee. That means he's more there more than one day. I have stretched out my hands unto thee. Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Selah. Here's that word of praise again. Now, why in the world would there be a word of praise attached to, Will you show wonders unto the dead? Because, yes, he did. Now, folks, here's what I want you to understand. Uh, Let me read a verse of Scripture to you from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. John 
sees Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. Verse 17, it says, John said, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead. Please notice that. I am he that liveth and was dead. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean Jesus was dead physically? And then he came back to life? Well, folks, if that's what it means, then let me ask you a question. Did Jesus die on the cross for the purpose of being raised again physically, resurrected physically, so that he could stay here on the earth? That would be the proof of his resurrection, wouldn't it? But Jesus was raised from the dead not so that he could stay here on the earth. He made an appearance. Several, as a matter of fact. But Jesus was raised from the dead, not so that he could stay here on the earth, but so he could go and be seated at the right hand of God the Father. So then what makes Jesus any different in his resurrection to go to heaven than those who had died physically, like Abraham, who were taken by Jesus into the presence of God too? And besides that, the Bible says Jesus was the firstborn or first begotten from the dead. What about others that had been raised physically? What about Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead? He predated Jesus in a physical resurrection. The resurrection cannot, therefore, be talking about physical resurrection. Alone, at least. It cannot just mean physical resurrection. It cannot just mean coming back from being physically dead to physically alive. Because Jesus was not physically alive in the same sense as he was before he died. He said to the disciples, handle me, a spirit has not flesh and bone like I have. He's not alive because of the blood. His blood had been shed. He says to himself, I'm not flesh and blood, I'm flesh and bone. So the resurrection can't just mean physical resurrection. It's impossible. Well, what does the resurrection mean then? It means he was resurrected from being spiritually or eternally dead. That's what he's saying here in Revelation chapter 1. I am he that was dead. Well, let me read it again. I am he that liveth and was dead. Now notice what he says next. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Now he's not just talking about quality of life. He's talking about eternity. And he says this, amen, and I have the keys of hell and of death. How could he get the keys of hell and death if he just went to paradise? Abraham was in paradise. Did he have the keys of hell and death? We see the rich man went to paradise. The Old Testament saints were there. We know Moses and Elijah came from there to talk to Jesus before Jesus went to the cross. Did those guys have the keys of hell and death by being in paradise? No. So being in paradise doesn't give you the keys to hell and death. That must mean Jesus went somewhere where the keys to hell and death were to get them. There's only one possibility for that, and that's him going to hell. Yeah, but but wait a minute, wait a minute. You only go to hell, not paradise, but you only go to hell, the place of the dead, if you're spiritually dead. How could Jesus be spiritually dead? He had to become death itself in order to pay the judgment or the price for sin. If he had just died on the cross and been raised physically, that would have covered sins from that point forward. But what about the sins prior to that? If Jesus, there's a, there's a scripture that always used to trouble me. It's in Genesis talking about when Adam and Eve fell. 
It says after God made skins for them, he showed them the sacrifice, he made skins, he drove them out of the garden, and he put a, an angel, a cherubim, with a flaming sword in front of the tree of life. And it looked, uh, it looked in, uh, in all directions and guarded in all directions. And the Bible says that the reason God did that was so that man would not come partake of the tree of life and stay in his fallen state or dead condition, spiritually dead condition forever. Now, what does that mean? That means you can stay in a spiritually dead condition forever. That means they could have partaken of the tree of life and gained eternal life from a standpoint of eternity, but not a change of nature. That's what would have happened if we had taken Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross without Jesus paying the price for sin. We could have been forgiven of sin from that point forward. But what are we going to do about the sin nature that came upon mankind because of Adam's sin? That's got to be paid for too. You know, in, uh, in uh, Isaiah 53, it says Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. What's the difference in transgressions and iniquities? What's the difference there? Very simple. One simple difference. One is the sins you committed. The other is the sins that Adam committed. One is the sin nature that came upon man and the other is the individual sin. The individual's sin. And if you had partaken of Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, to apply just to your individual sin, you still have to go to hell because of the sin nature. Because that sin nature has separated you from God. And that that has to be paid for. That has to be paid for. Back to verse 10. Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Oh, yeah. Praise God, they will. Shall loving kindness, shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave? Yep. Now the grave here is a reference to hell. Or thy faithfulness in destruction? Yep, that's exactly where the life of God and the loving kindness of God operated. Shall thy wonders be known in the dark and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Yep. But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in thy morning shall my prayer prevent thee. Lord, why casteth off thy my soul? Why hidest thou thy face from me? I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. Now, this phrase is interesting, ready to die from my youth up, because you remember Jesus at age 12. He and his uh, parents go to Jerusalem. They leave. They offer the sacrifices that they're supposed to, and they leave town thinking that Jesus is with them, but he's not. He's still back in the temple. They go back three days later and find Jesus sitting there with the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and he's answering their questions, and, and they're marveling at his answers. And he's asking the, the religious leaders questions that they can't answer. Remember the story? His mother's really upset, as you would imagine any mother to be, going three days not knowing where your son is. His mother comes to him and says, Jesus, what in the world are you doing here? Don't ever do that to me again. And Jesus said, Mother, don't you know I must be about my father's business? It indicates this very same thing by prophecy hundreds of years prior to that point. Because from the point that Jesus was a youth, he understood what his plan and what God's plan and his purpose was for his life, and he was ready to die. That's what this is saying. From my youth up, I was ready to die. But then it says, while I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. Another translation says, I have borne thy terrors so that I am distracted. See, the Bible paints a picture of us, for us, of when Jesus is in hell for those three days before his resurrection, three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. It paints a picture of us, of Jesus suffering the wrath of God like waves crashing over and over and over again upon him. Well, what would the wrath of God look like? 
We see a little picture in what the Bible tells us in Revelation about the tribulation period, the seven years of tribulation. It's one calamity after another. Just bang, 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 bang. You ever been to the beach when the, the waves were high and they were just crashing? We were in Hawaii one time and there was a lady, that, the, the, the waves were real high. It was just kind of a freak thing, maybe a storm somewhere else. And there was this lady that, that didn't realize what was going on and she got caught in the surf. And this, the, every time the wave would come, it would crash and it would roll her over and she couldn't get up. She couldn't get out. And Beth went and rescued her. <laughs> and we'll never hear the end of that. <laughs> but wave after wave after wave, she, she couldn't move. She couldn't do anything. She couldn't get away. I was back in the hotel room. That's why Beth went to rescue her instead of me doing it. I can see some of you looking and say, well, what are you doing? Sitting over there drinking your pina colada or virgin whatever. I didn't see it. I was in the hotel room. Well, that's a similar picture that the Bible paints of us of Jesus paying the punishment or literally being the punishment for sin. Wave after wave after wave after wave after wave is crashing on Jesus to the point where it says in verse 9, I am wasted away. Remember Jesus on the cross? He said two, the last two things he said. One was, it is finished. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Why? It is finished. That's easy. He's saying my work here on the earth is done. The old covenant isn't even fulfilled yet, so he can't be talking about that. He's talking about it is finished, meaning the work of the living, I mean, the work of the, the animal sacrifice, uh, or that which was represented by the animal sacrifice. The day of atonement sacrifice, that part is finished. Now the scapegoat part is just about to start. Now why would he have to commend his spirit into the hands of God if he's just going to paradise? That's a place of pleasure. Remember Jesus tells us in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus was comforted. The rich man was tormented by the flames. So why is Jesus commending his spirit into the hands of God? I mean, it's like he's saying, okay, Father, I'm trusting you with my spirit. Why is he doing that if he's going to a place of comfort? Why is he doing that if he's going to paradise? What reason would there be for that? But if he's going to hell, if he becomes the substitute for mankind, for the sin nature of mankind, so that the punishment of death comes upon him so that he eternally dies. And he has no longer power to raise himself up. Now he's in the hands of God. And only God can do it. And if God doesn't do something, he's sunk forever. Folks, that's the death that Jesus died. The Bible says in, in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10, it says he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now, the word death is singular in the King James, but in the original Hebrew, the word death is plural. He made his grave with the wicked and the rich with his deaths, both physical and spiritual. And spiritual death is eternal death, just like spiritual life is eternal life. Verse 16 again, thy fierce wrath goeth over me and thy terrors have cut me off. Verse 16 says in another translation, it says, Thy streams of wrath have cut me off. They have destroyed me. Now, folks, I want you to consider something for a minute. If Jesus knew this, I mean, this was in Psalms. He knew that he knew Psalm 88 was there. If he knew that this was what he was going to experience, if he knew this is what he was going to suffer, 
You think that might have had something to do with him sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane? You think maybe Jesus was sweating great drops of blood and agonizing and anguishing and having to be, uh, having to be strengthened by an angel to finish the work? Do you think that had a connection maybe? Rather than just the physical suffering of the cross? Let me read a couple of verses from uh, Isaiah 53. I've gone a lot longer with this than I plan to. Let me, let me close this up real quick. Isaiah 53. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those are the words sicknesses and pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, folks, there are four specific things that it says Jesus paid for. Iniquities, transgressions, peace, and sickness. Four specific things. Don't tell me God's just saying, using two different words for the same word sin. This is too exact. No, it means individual sins and it means the sin nature that came upon the earth. Wherefore, by one man sinned into the world. That's Adam. And death passed upon all men. Because of Adam's sin, death, spiritual death, eternal death passed upon all men. Jesus had to pay for that. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's talking sin nature. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. Can't be physical death. Because there's nothing different about what Jesus endured in being cut off from physical death or by physical death, than Abraham or Isaac or any of the other Old Testament saints. It's got to be something more than that. I was talking about Jesus' time in hell. He's talking about Jesus dying spiritually or eternally. He was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths. Here's that word plural. Doesn't show it in the King James, but in the original translate, in the original language, it's plural. Because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. The Hebrew on this literally says he has made him sick. It's talking about Jesus paying the price for sickness. Doesn't mean that he had cancer. It means he paid the punishment for all sickness. Notice the next phrase. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Other translations say it this way. When thou hast made his soul an offering for sin, or thou shalt make his life a sin offering. Another translation says, though his soul take on itself guilt. I like that one. I think that's the closest to showing what really happened. He shall prolong his days and in the pleasure of his, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Let me read this from another translation. Through the travail of his soul shall he see light in fullness. And by his knowledge shall my servant bring justice to me. And of their guilt shall he bear the burden. Folks, the Bible's pretty clear, in my opinion. You judge for yourself. But the Bible's pretty clear when you put these things together. Jesus shed his blood as the animal sacrifice to fulfill the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement for the animal that was killed. But he went to hell to fulfill the what we call the scapegoat's work. Now, here's, a, here's one of the things about the scapegoat. The important issue about the scapegoat is that he could never return. So he was taken. Whoever was given charge of the scapegoat, it was a, a, one of the priest's responsibilities... He took this animal so far into the wilderness where there was no possibility for the animal to ever return. Because the important issue is the judgment of sin has been laid upon the scapegoat so that the scapegoat carries it away once and forever, never to return. The Bible says, gives us some information about what happened to Jesus. Because Jesus has committed his life unto the Father. He has been destroyed by the punishment of sin. He is eternally dead. Folks, I want you to understand this. He was just as spiritually dead as you and I were before we found Jesus. Without hope. Unless God undertakes. There's nothing that can be done. So what does the Bible tell us happens? It says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, Jesus was resurrected when we were justified. There came a point when the price was paid. There came an instant in time when the punishment for sin was satisfied. And at that moment, that's when the life of God came back to Jesus. That's when God caused him to be born again from the spiritually dead. That's why the Bible tells us he was the firstborn from the dead. He was the first begotten of many brethren. He was the first one to be born again. He was born again from spiritual death just as real as you and I are born again from spiritual death when we ask Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. It says that he was born again. Paul in talking in, uh, in preaching in Acts chapter 13 in, in delivering a message, he speaks of the crucifixion and the resurrection as being the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, I think it is, where he says, God speaks from heaven and says, Thou art my beloved son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, to our thinking, to the natural mind, that should be spoken when God caused Jesus to be born of Mary. But that's not when God said it. God said, This day have I begotten thee, when the life of God came back upon Jesus when he was in hell and raised him from spiritual death to eternal life. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says Jesus was justified in spirit. How could he be justified unless he was spiritually dead? 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says Jesus was made alive in spirit. How do you make something alive that's not dead? That's why Colossians 1 verse 18 says Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. You could well understand now, because of these truths, why when Jesus is raised from the dead, he appears to the disciples. It's a whole new day. That's what Easter represents. 
It represents the paying and the doing away with of sin once and for all. If you're feeling guilty about something that's in your past, it's been dealt with. Jesus took our judgment to the pit of hell. And when the life of God came back upon him, that's when he took the keys of hell and death. And he was raised up and he appears to his disciples and says, guys, have I got good news for you? Receive the Holy Ghost. He breathes on them, says receive the Holy Ghost, and their lives are changed. The only thing the devil can do when it comes to the issue of sin, the only thing the devil can do to try to hold you back is to either deceive you about what power you have over sin or to deceive you about what has happened to your sins and the punishment of those sins in your past. That's all he can do. And if you don't let him do those two things, that doesn't mean you'll never stumble, doesn't mean you'll never make a mistake. But every time you make a mistake, pick yourself back up and say, thank God my sins have been paid for. If you don't let him do those two things, either deceive you about committing sin or deceive you about the punishment of sin, if you don't allow him to deceive you in either of those two areas, that's where you can reign in life by Jesus Christ. Thank God Jesus was willing to pay the price. Thank God he was willing to pay the price.